John chapter 14, we find Jesus with his disciples in the upper room. Their whole world is about to be turned upside down and inside out. The teacher they have followed for three years will soon be rushed through six illegitimate trials and will be brutally executed. This time tomorrow, Jesus' mangled body will lie in a tomb. The disciples do not understand that a bodily resurrection that we just sang about is coming. All is lost. Or is it? Let's begin our reading with verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. In the upper room, Jesus gives us several startling new revelations concerning the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was there all along through the entire Old Testament. But in the words of B.B. Warfield, the Trinity in the Old Testament is like a room fully furnished, but dimly lit. You have to take the light of the New Testament and shine it back into the Old Testament to really see it. The revelation of the Holy Spirit actually will take a quantum leap forward in the upper room straight through Pentecost. Before Christmas, I emphasize the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's referred to in verse 26. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. He will teach you. Now, since it's been several weeks, let's just review quickly the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered how the Gospel writers recalled so many stories, sayings, parables, interactions, conversations, and sermons of Jesus? How is that even possible? The answer is the Holy Spirit just brought it all back to them. But there's actually more to the Holy Spirit's ministry than simple recall. Jesus said He will teach you all things. Now, it's often been said that Jesus finished His teaching of the disciples before He left earth. As if there was nothing more to learn. You've got everything you need, now go launch the church. But actually, that's not true. 
Jesus will pass them off to a new teacher. So let's recall four ways the new teacher helps the disciples. First of all, the Holy Spirit helps the disciples rethink the entire Old Testament. And of course, Jesus begins to do this in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection. When you read how the Spirit came on the apostles at Pentecost, and then you read Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, you actually observe this reorientation happening in real time. Peter preaches the Psalms and Joel with a clarity that he did not have in the upper room. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand why Messiah died and resurrected. Every time Jesus explained to the disciples that he was going to die, the disciples did not understand his meaning. Now, the disciples then will have to develop a whole theology of cross and resurrection. And that sounds really important. Well, who's going to help them develop this whole theology? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit will equip the disciples to know how to launch the church. Jesus rarely mentioned the church. In fact, only two recorded times, both in Matthew. If you had only Matthew 16 and 18 to help you launch the church, my friends, you would not get very far. But in Acts, the disciples through the Holy Spirit's ministry will launch the church of Christ into the sea of humanity. And fourthly, the Holy Spirit will help the disciples understand the second coming of Jesus Christ. The disciples were indeed looking for a coming Messiah. That much they got correct from reading the Old Testament. But it wasn't at all clear from the Old Testament that Messiah would come and then leave and come back again. If you were to ask a Jewish rabbi today why he does not embrace Jesus as Messiah, one of his answers will be, where does the Old Testament teach that Messiah comes twice? This needs some clarity, and the Holy Spirit will teach on that point. Now, that's all the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. In addition to his teaching ministry, the Holy Spirit will bring peace. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in verse 27, but you have to read it in the context of verse 26. The Holy Spirit is coming to us in Jesus' absence. Therefore, peace follows, verse 27. And then notice verse 28. Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Well, what's all that about? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to leave, okay? He's going away, so where's the peace if Jesus is gone? 
Well, Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And what happens when Jesus returns to the Father? Here's what happens. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you just glance ahead at John 15 and verse 26, notice the words, but when the Helper comes, that's the Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus returns to the Father, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. And that Holy Spirit, verse 27, brings peace. This is how Jesus leaves his peace with us. The Holy Spirit comes. So I have entitled this message, The Holy Spirit Brings Jesus' Peace. Now, what is peace? This is such an important topic that actually we could spend a whole series on this topic. We'll give it one sermon, all right? But our world is not at peace today. So I want to take some time and just really help us as Christians understand what is meant by the term peace. In the immediate context, peace is the antithesis of what we find in the world. Jesus insists in verse 27, not as the world gives, do I give you. So whatever this peace is, guess what? You're not going to find it out there in the world. The world doesn't deliver this kind of peace. The world is actually powerless to give us Christ peace. Jesus was born into the world during a period known as the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. Supposedly, the Roman Empire brought peace to the entire Mediterranean basin. The Pax Romana Romana was inaugurated by the first Roman emperor. We know him as Octavian Augustus. It was under his reign that Jesus was born. And here is what Paulus Maximus says of Octavius. He is the Savior for us and for our descendants, the man, the man who ends war and creates peace. The birthday of the God, Octavian, means for the world the beginning of the message of peace, which has him as its author. And the words translated message of peace come from our Greek term euangelion or gospel. That's the world's message. Here is the gospel of peace that comes from the Roman emperor. Octavius introduced, introduced us to a world of peace, supposedly. But how did the Romans achieve this peace? Anyone know? By the sword. And how was the Roman peace spread across the Mediterranean? By the sword. And how was this peace maintained? By the sword. The Romans crucified thousands in order to keep the peace. And after Jesus' death, 
Israel descended into anarchy and civil war. Then came the Roman legions trampling through Israel, raping, burning, pillaging, and laying Jerusalem under siege. The Jews were reduced to cannibalism before their golden temple was dismantled stone by stone. All of this was done in the name of peace. You know, friends, that same bloody narrative of peaceful empire just runs all through human history. The conquistadors of the Spanish Empire in the 16th century raped, pillaged, and burned their way through South America, Mexico, and Western North America. The British Empire planted its flag and commandeered native lands all across the globe, and blood flowed in the streets wherever the British landed. The British colonizers brought war to the New World. Historian Eric Schultz writes, among the handful of similar events that shaped the American mind and continent, King Philip's War is perhaps the least studied and most forgotten. This was a war between the New England Puritans and the Native Americans. And it has been called the deadliest war per capita in North American recorded history, roughly twice as deadly as the Civil War, and eight times more deadly than the American Revolution. 30% of the English population of New England perished, and Native American casualties were far worse. The war led ultimately to a 60 to 80% reduction in New England's Indian population through death, deportation, and enslavement. That's peace, right? Well, the world does not know how to achieve peace. After thousands of years of history, we, re- we just need to learn this lesson. The world doesn't know how to do this. In the 2003 article in the New York Times... Chris Hedges asked the question, what every person should know about war. What is a war? And here is his answer. War is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. So given that answer, here's a related question. Has the world ever been at peace? Well, here's what he says of the past 3,400 years, and we could actually go back much farther. That takes us back a little while after Joshua. Humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. That's 268 years out of 3,400 years of human history. That's 8% of recorded history. How about the last century? I think I did this one time seven or eight years ago. Let me give you a partial list of wars that have been fought in the 20th century. This is a partial list. 1898 to 1901, Box Rebellion. 1899 to 1902, the Boer War. 1904 to 1905, the Russo-Japanese War. 1910 to 1920, the Mexican Revolution. 1912 to 1913, First and Second Balkan Wars. 1914 to 1918, World War I. 1915 to 1918, Armenian Genocide. 
1917, Russian Revolution, 1918-1921, Russian Civil War, 1919-1921, Irish War of Independence, 1927-1937, Chinese Civil War, 1933-1945, the Holocaust, 1935-1936, the Second Italo-Abyssinian War, 1936-1939, the Spanish Civil War, 1939-1945, World War II, 1945-1990, Cold War, 1946-1949, Chinese Civil War, 1946-1954, First Indochina War, 1948, Israeli War for Independence, 1950-1953, Korean War, 1954-1962, French-Algerian War, 1955-1917, First uh, Sudanese Civil War, 1956, the Suez Crisis, 1959, Cuban Revolution, 1959-1979, Vietnam War, 1967, the Six-Day War, 1979, 1989, 89, this is, this is a lot, all right, Soviet-Afghan War, 1980-1988, Iran-Iraq War, 1990-1991, Persian Gulf War, 1991-1995, the Third Balkan War, 1994, the Rwandan Genocide. That's a partial list, and that's just one century. I look back over my own family's history. My, my great-grandfather was a veterinarian who fought in World War I. In fact, his job was to ferry horses over the Atlantic and keep them battle-ready when they landed. My grand- grandfather was in World War II. His ship was destroyed at the Battle of Guadalcanal by the Japanese. My father was in Vietnam. My brother-in-law is in the Marines and has actually had several different deployments. I mean, this is just part of our family history. War. Now, given all those wars, wouldn't you expect that war would probably be the most troubling thing that robs us of all peace? Surprisingly, in a 2018 survey by Chapman University of what Americans fear most, war does not even crack the top ten. Number 12 is that the U.S. will be involved in another war. Number 13 is Islamic terrorists. Number 20 is some sort of biological war. Here are some of the top 10. 73% fear corrupt government officials, for good reason. 61% fear the pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. 60% fear pollution of drinking water. 57% fear not having enough money for the future. 56% of people fear uh, becoming seriously ill. 56% also uh, fear people I love dying. 52% fear high medical bills. That same survey identifies 94 sources of fear that plague Americans. Here they are, identity theft, government tracking personal data, drunk drivers, credit card fraud, the collapse of the electrical grid, drought, nuclear accidents, break-in, tornadoes, unemployment, hurricanes, the government use of drones, private militia movements, earthquakes, computers replacing people in the workplace, wildfire, mugging, sharks, financial fraud, police brutality, reptiles, illegal immigration, sexual assault, fake news, germs, needles, a cheating spouse, Whites no longer being the majority, clowns, blood, and zombies. 
well, clearly the world is full of trouble. We are not at peace. But Jesus says in verse 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So friends, I can't approach all that and be afraid. I'm just not allowed to. Jesus says, be at peace. So what is he talking about? Well, obviously he is not talking about the end of war. Do you realize that just two days earlier, two days earlier, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus promised continual wars and rumors of wars. He just said that. And Jesus is not talking about removing all those troubles that we experience. Most of those 94 fears that trouble the world can trouble the Christian, although I'm not afraid of zombies. So then, what is peace? What is Jesus talking about? Let's consider, at this point, just two aspects of Jesus' peace. And let's begin by turning to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. The first aspect is what Paul calls peace with God. In Romans 4, Paul explains justification by faith using Abraham and David as examples of men who were justified by faith. And now in Romans 5, Paul will identify several results of justification. And would you notice the first result of justification? You've been justified, so what's the result? Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. With who? With God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now friends, what exactly is peace with God? In the second book of his space trilogy... A book called Paralandra, C.S. Lewis explores the concept of peace. Is peace just then the total absence of war, the end of conflict, the cessation of all pain and suffering, the total absence of the curse? Well, we may achieve that someday through the gospel, but not yet. Because in the absence of war, peace is actually a meaningless term. Did any of you wake up today just feeling at peace because World War III has ended? Of course not. Peace is impossible to understand without understanding war or hostility. What is peace when there is no conflict? And Paralandra, Ransom, the protagonist, visits Paralandra. And Ransom comes from Earth, racked by war and bloody conflict. Paralandra is an unfallen planet, and two unfallen creatures live on the planet, the king and the queen, the Paralandrian, there we go, Adam and Eve. And Ransom's mission, in part, is to prevent the kind of fall that happened on planet Earth. And Ransom soon meets Eve, the green lady, whose name is Tenadril. And their exchange is very intriguing. Lewis writes, 
speaking slowly in that ancient language, Ransom cried out to her, I am a stranger, I come in peace. Is it your will that I swim over to your land? The green lady looked quickly at him with an expression of curiosity. What is peace? She asked. How would you like to explain peace to Eve in the garden before the fall? How would you do that? Eve, of course, partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she came to know evil when she partook of that tree together with Adam. But it was also the tree of the knowledge of good. Does Eve, after the fall, understand goodness in a much more profound and experiential way? Does she suddenly understand what it means to be at peace with God once she loses that peace? When she finally finds that God, when she suddenly finds that God is her enemy? Peace, biblical peace, shalom, to use the Hebrew term, concerns restoration. It means wholeness or completeness. It refers to that time when the whole creation is put back together again according to God's original intent. And most importantly, peace concerns a restored relationship with our Creator. We actually are born into this world as enemies of God. We are hostile toward God. We suppress the truth of the knowledge of God, Romans chapter 1. Consequently, we do not live on this planet at peace with our Creator or with His creation. Nature itself is just hostile toward us. It's full of disease, storms, and ravenous animals. The Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, repeatedly spoke on behalf of God. And here's what God said. I am against you. Whoa, I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. Why do Yahweh's prophets proclaim, Yahweh, your God, is against you? And he would say the same to all Gentiles. I am against you. But Paul uses the term peace to speak of a complete reversal. Instead of wrath, we find grace. And when God pours out his grace, the result is restoration. You read right through to Romans chapter 8, and the whole creation is restored when we are rightly related again to our creator. In fact, Obadiah spoke of a kind of restoration that has never been achieved by any military conflict in human history. Obadiah says of God's enemies, it shall be as though they had never been. We have a Holocaust museum today in Washington, D.C. Why? Because we cannot eradicate the evils of the Nazi regime. We've not been able to do that. And the peace of World War II was immediately supplanted by dread when the gates of Auschwitz and Dachau and Buchenwald were just thrown wide open to the world. 
And we've been living with the dread of that event ever since. God's peace brings permanent restoration. He just entirely removes the effects of sin and evil forever. Now, that's all very well and good, you might say. Through Christ, we now have peace with God. But here's the problem. We still live in a broken, fallen world full of trouble on every side. So how do we really apply this? How do we begin to live out Jesus' peace in a fallen world? Well, at this point, let's turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, and let's pursue a second aspect of Jesus' peace. Back to Matthew chapter 6. When you are at peace with God, guess what that looks like? Well, when you're not at peace with God, what does that look like? And the answer is a life full of anxiety. And that's one of the issues that Jesus will deal with in this famous sermon. For Jesus, peace with God brings about a cessation of anxiety. Matthew 6 and verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life. Pause. Think about all the things that make Americans anxious today. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, we didn't read verses 19 through 24, but Jesus in those verses deals with our possessions. And he told us that we would be owned by a master, by God, or by money. But in verse 25, what he's doing is he's actually going deeper. He's drilling right into our hearts. In fact, the whole sermon is all about our hearts. It's one thing to say you cannot serve God in money, but let's go deeper yet. Let's go right into the very core of our beings. Every last one of us has a natural desire for self-preservation. And instantaneously, we find ourselves wanting to qualify what Jesus is saying. I mean, I read verse 25, I'm like, "Uh, is that really what he means? Friends, our most fundamental human needs are for food and for water and for clothing. And Jesus says we cannot be anxious about even the basics. Look at the text of verse 25. Look at it very carefully. Don't worry about food or water or clothing. You're saying, is that even possible? I mean, when we work back to the Sermon on the Mount many years ago, we observed actually the whole sermon is totally impossible. And that's why you shouldn't even attempt to obey it without the power of the Holy Spirit. The only person who actually ever kept this teaching perfectly was Jesus himself. And if you want proof of that, Read the temptation account in Matthew chapter 4. Here is Jesus out there in the wilderness. He is starving to death. He looks like a survivor of a death camp. His skin is blistered and cracked under a boiling Mediterranean sun. But man shall not live by bread alone. By every word of God. Even in the worst possible condition... 
Jesus somehow lived without anxiety, even about his most basic need for food. So we're never going to achieve this like Jesus did. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to take our anxieties and set them aside. In the next two verses, Jesus gives two illustrations demonstrating the absurdity of anxiety. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Now, both examples point implicitly to the truth that God is our creator. God also made the birds flying around up there, didn't he? And birds do not engage in the agricultural process the way humans do. They do not have large barns full of provisions stored away for the future, but they don't starve, Jesus says. And notice that Jesus does not say their heavenly father feeds them, but he actually uses the word your, your heavenly father feeds them. Jesus is singling us out as important. God is concerned for his entire creation, but particularly he's your father. You have a father in heaven who cares for you. If he cares for the birds, don't you think he cares for you? If we are truly at peace with God the creator, as Paul claimed in Romans 5, don't you suppose that we can trust him to feed us? We're going to be okay. In verse 27, then Jesus introduces a second example. The idiom in this verse, so, has proven a little difficult for translators. The King James reads, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? The ESV reads, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So which is it? Well, the Greek text reads something like, yet any of you being anxious is able to add one cubit to, and then we have a word that can be translated either age or bodily stature. And which is correct is hard to say. On the one hand, adding a cubit to one's life strikes us as an odd way to refer to the addition of time. A cubit normally measures distance, not age, hence the ESV translation. But in Jewish culture, that was not always the case. Psalm 39 verse 5 speak of God, of God making one's days as a handbreadth. On the other hand, it's difficult to imagine someone wanting to add a cubit that is an entire 18 inches to his height. Maybe a few inches, but 18 inches sounds a little excessive. So, which is right, I'm not sure. Either way, the point is really the same. Your creator has made you. So stop being anxious about it. You cannot be any taller than God has made you. Nor can you live a day longer than your creator wills for you. It's not going to happen. If you are at peace with God, then just, just accept what he has ordained for you. That's what Jesus is saying. So when you think about your life, just realize that you have been designed by an all-good creator. And he has some sort of specific service for you in his kingdom. It's all been mapped out. So just trust him. When you are at peace with him, you're not just full of anxiety, even about your food. 
The God who made you also created the circumstance into which he placed you. And he's going to care for you. And now in the following verses, Jesus will come back with yet another example. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, friends, when Jesus says, don't be anxious about your clothing, he has a very different context in mind than our American context. When Americans are anxious about their clothing, it's because they have too much of it. When someone says, what am I going to wear, he does not mean, am I going to have something to wear? He or she means something like, for my extensive wardrobe, what am I going to pick out today? Jesus is talking to people who had just a couple changes of garments on average. He is talking to people whose feet were calloused because they often lacked shoes. Nevertheless, Jesus tells these kinds of people, do not be anxious. Jesus clothes the flowers of the field with delicate petals and profusions of colors. They don't manufacture their clothes the way we have to, through spinning and weaving fabrics together. They are powerless to clothe themselves. But the Creator cares for them. If God cares about the flowers, don't you think He cares about you? I mean, look at a flower. Look at that flower. Does God care about that flower? Of course he does. Then he certainly cares about you. Now in verses 29 to 30, Jesus gives us a context for really framing our thinking then about anxiety. And essentially he says this, life is so brief. Do you seriously want to just fritter your days away concerned about your clothing? Are we going to go through life constantly obsessed by insignificant trivialities? Or just find abiding contentment by trusting the Father. In verse 29, Jesus mentions a man named Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes. That dude was perplexed with all kinds of anxieties. Napoleon Bonaparte was a modern Solomon. The wealthiest and most powerful man of his age. But do you think that guy was ever at peace? You think that guy was ever at peace with his own soul? Barry Edward O'Meara was an Irish surgeon who accompanied Napoleon to the island of St. Helena. He became his personal physician after he went into exile. And he is largely remembered for a work that he wrote called Napoleon in Exile, A Voice from St. Helena. It's a very interesting work. And here's what he says of a conversation that he had with a once proud emperor. What do you think, said Napoleon, of all the things in the world would give me the greatest pleasure? The happiest days of my life were from 16 to 20, during the semesters. When I used to go about, as I have told you, I should wish to do, from one restaurant to another, living moderately, and having a lodging for which I paid three louis a month. They were the happiest days of my life. I was always so much occupied that I may say I never was truly happy 
upon the throne. That's really astonishing. His happiest days were long before he was ever famous or wealthy or powerful. Friends, that man never enjoyed peace. The world has never known peace. So with all that in place, let's turn back to John chapter 14. And just recall how Jesus began in chapter 14 and verse 1 with these words, Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Why? Because he's given us his peace. A peace that's not found anywhere in the world. And what is that peace? It all begins with a restoration of our relationship with our Creator. Romans 5. We have peace with God. And if that's true, how then should I live? We'll start living out the Sermon on the Mount through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us the peace of God. Now, does that mean that we will never suffer? What happens when you begin living out the peace of God and trouble comes? Friends, would you just remember this? Jesus was the only human being who ever lived in a state of perfect peace with God, and yet trouble came. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. Why? For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Here's Jesus trusting his Father. This is he said in Matthew 6, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Where is he going? He's headed towards death. The devil himself is coming for Jesus. And even while he speaks, the devil has possessed Judas Iscariot and is driving him toward the Garden of Gethsemane. But it was all according to the Father's plan. And Jesus submitted himself to the Father's command. And he rose from the table and went into the night to dark Gethsemane. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble and you will not find peace. Nor did Jesus. He was crucified under the Pax Romana. But Jesus was at peace with God and therefore he lived without anxiety knowing that God had determined all things. He is our perfect model. Shall we pray together? Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from peace, and from anxiety rather, And that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give us peace. And for those feeling great anxiety today, Lord, I pray that your words minister to their hearts so the power of your Holy Spirit would bring peace. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.